Welcome to fall. Uh, I want to start off with a word association. I say mosquito, you say what comes to your mind next. So some of you be like annoying. Some of you are swatting at mosquitoes right now while you're getting settled in for the Love First podcast. I'm not sure many of us would say, oh, blessing, because you see, in reality, they're not just annoying. We know that some people would say uh, deadly, right? But for me, at least one mosquito was this incredible blessing. Yes. And thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast, because I'm going to tell you about the mosquito that blessed me and just might bless you as well. Here at the Love First Podcast, our purpose is to catalyze courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love. If you are returning, thank you for subscribing, liking, and sharing, and inviting people that you know to join us. And if this is your first time, thank you so much for joining us. And my prayer is that in this time together, God will touch your heart and touch your mind and revolutionize the way you love. All right, so I got to get to it. It was around 1979, 1980, and a friend of mine named John had the coolest car of all of us. Now, a few of my friends had super cool cars. His was the coolest of all. It was a classic Camaro Z28, had the big engine, the best transmission, the coolest wheels, the coolest tires, the coolest sound. And then one day, it actually showed up at my house on the back of a wrecker. Yes, the car was wrecked. And I bought it because I wanted that engine to go in my car. You say, well, what happened? Well, my friend was driving and there was a mosquito buzzing around in his car early in the morning. That mosquito finally landed on the windshield and he reached up to swat it. And when he did, he didn't realize the people in front of him had all stopped. And he slammed into the back of the car in front of him. I love that car and I love that engine. I'm really glad I ended up with the engine. I'm sorry for my buddy, John. But you know, that mosquito did play a role in me ending up with that engine. I think to myself, what is it about annoying things in life that make us want to swat them away? that make us want to somehow get rid of them. People say, oh, well, you know, a, a mosquito is such a small annoyance. Well, it might be unless you're stuck in a tent with it. You see, the impact of something, how much it annoys us, how much it, it frustrates us, how much distress and stress it puts on our life, isn't always measured by how big it appears in some settings or how big it appears to other people. And I promise you, some of the things that are filling our headlines right now, they seem more like nuclear bombs than mosquitoes. As of the recording of this episode of the Love First podcast, 
Think about the things that are on our minds. Think about Louisville and what's happening surrounding the death of Breonna Taylor. Think about the Supreme Court opening. We're 40 days from the upcoming presidential election. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. We're in the ongoing battle about climate change. We're facing questions ongoing of how will we deal with race, gender, sexism, justice, equity. We've got tariffs, the economy. We have the isolation of this pandemic, mental stress, family distress. And all of these things feel like that there's a clock ticking, 40 days to the election. We wonder, when are we going to hear the news that there's a vaccine available? And while we have all these time-sensitive issues, we find ourselves wondering, does anyone have any timeless guidance for how to navigate the stress, how to navigate the division in our society, our churches, our schools, our businesses, our own families. How to navigate conversations that seem to go from zero to a hundred, from no stress to complete nuclear fallout. I mean, I think we also wonder, is just this an ongoing downhill trend? Or is there a way to emerge from all of this actually better than we were before. I believe, I believe that there is timeless guidance to all of these time-sensitive, time-pressured issues. That timeless guidance didn't come all at once in preparation for this podcast. You know, I thought, what could we, what could we do to catalyze these conversations? And I thought, well, why don't we just read through the Ten Commandments again? I mean, surely if we follow the Ten Commandments, that could help, right? I also thought, well, man, what about Jesus's beatitudes? I never, ever tire of going through the conviction, the comfort, the challenge of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, or Luke chapter 6, where Jesus drops knowledge on us of some of his most profound theological and practical teaching. But I also thought, what would it be like if we could find somewhere in biblical writing where a group of people were facing circumstances very similar to our own, where people might be thinking, our society is so messed up. Or someone might think, how did our church get this divided? When someone's thinking, how is it that people that used to be my friends now feel like my enemies, that even families are separated? And, and here's, what I, here's what I did. I thought, I need to go back and read a chapter in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. Now, when we open our Bibles, we call this Romans chapter 14. So if you're able to do that right now, why don't you go ahead and open your Bible app, or if you have like I have here, uh, your Bible in book form, open it to find Romans chapter 14. And while you're doing that, let's get a little context here, right? So, the letter to the Romans appears like it was written around A.D. 57, somewhere in the later mid part of the, of the uh, 50s of the first century. 
The apostle Paul is a missionary who started out persecuting the church, but then ends up through an encounter with Christ. Then his whole life is changed where he begins to see through the imagination lens of God and Christ for what God wants for the world. Where at one point the Apostle Paul kind of had a segmented, fragmented world where certain people were highlighted, they were the most important, they were the ones that were right about everything, and that some people were so wrong that they were just an annoyance at best, deadly at worst. And the Apostle Paul was willing to meet force with force. He thought if they're a deadly force of deception in that first century world, he was willing to actually participate in taking their physical lives. Yes, Paul was willing to kill Christians to shut them up. But then Paul has this encounter with Christ, and he begins to reimagine the world. And it wasn't that he let go of everything he knew up to that point, because actually this new life in Christ was rooted in the life that he knew. He just didn't see the connection. He didn't understand that Christ was the fulfillment of this. And so when Paul begins to show that the life that he had been brought up in, in faith in Yahweh, the the God of the Jews, the, the Torah, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, the Bible of the Jewish people, when Paul began to realize that Jesus was actually fulfilling all of those things he had been taught, then he began to change, his life was transformed, and he started preaching that fulfillment. Well, guess what? People that used to clap for him, for telling those Christians how wrong they were and shutting them down, now would actually rise up in mobs and try to kill him the way he used to try to kill people. Quite the shift. Paul references this many times in his writings. The the writer Luke references this many times in the book of Acts in our Bibles to try to help us understand that this very impactful person, this first century missionary that carried the gospel of Christ to the Mediterranean world, was once on the other side of the very issues for which people would now hunt him and try to kill him. So when Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Rome in the middle of the first century, these are real people with real questions, real distress, and real division. These are people that cannot figure out how to get along in their church. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, but I want to articulate five of them. One of the key issues that this church, one of the key reasons that this church struggled with division was just maturity. Some people were new to Christ, and some people had been in Christ for a while. Some people were new to Scripture. Some people had been familiar with Scripture most of their life. So maturity was just a normal issue. And I think we all have to realize that one of the reasons that there are differences in all aspects of our life is just something as simple as maturity. I promise you, I am a different person at my age now than I was 40 years ago when I was in college. There are many times through the course of my life when I can look back 10 hours, 10 days, or 10 years and realize 
that the person I have become in Christ is different than the person I was in the past simply because of maturity. A second issue related to maturity is knowledge. The Apostle Paul in another letter that he wrote to Christians in the city of Corinth said, hey, for us, there's one God, and, and we all know who that God is, the God of creation, the God of redemption, and right after that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul just says, but not everyone knows that. And he's actually, he's actually talking about Christians. Like in their church, some people have this knowledge and some people don't. So it's not like they have two churches. It's not like they have different churches, just as any would be true with any growing church, any growing business, any growing country, any growing educational institution, people are going to be always at different levels of knowledge. A third reason for some of the divisions and struggles and distress in the church in Rome was because of conscience. Some people, their conscience allowed them to do things that were different than the convention they grew up with, different than the tradition that they grew up with, different than purity laws that they grew up with. Now, the Apostle Paul says, hey, if people don't agree with all of your convention, tradition, or some of the purity laws that you grew up with, that doesn't mean they're wrong. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that you always need to go against your conscience just because someone else has a different view of things. The fourth reason that Paul gives for the ways that people would be different or that divisions can arise is the difference between weak and strong. Let me ask you this question. Have you always been strong of character? Strong of will? Strong of determination? Have you always been tenaciously righteous? Or have you ever been through a situation where you had a repetitive sin and it really hurt you in your conscience to fall to that sin again? Did you ever pray to God? Please forgive me. I'll never do it again. And within minutes, hours, days, weeks, or months, there you were again. The Apostle Paul says that the truth is that all of us have strengths, all of us have weaknesses. We are all an amalgamation of strengths and weaknesses. And guess what? In some relationships, at some times, you will be the stronger sister or the stronger brother. In some relationships, at some times, you will be the weaker brother or the weaker sister. That's one of the reasons that when we come together as strong and weak, we can sense distress or division. The fifth reason that Paul gives is considerations or convictions. Now, he uses those two words, and basically what that means is this, that when you're trying to figure out a complicated issue or you're working on a simpler issue, but it has complicated implications, and you're trying to work that out and understand the nuances and the different ways that it affects people, you might be like, you know what? I've tried to consider 
everyone in this decision. Have you said that before? Or I've tried to consider all of these possibilities, and then someone steps up and says, well, did you consider this? And you're like, I didn't. Uh, Man, I never even thought of that. Right? One of the things that I've learned over the course of ministry is the impact of color choices in PowerPoint or illustrations for people in the churches I've served that are colorblind. And someone comes up and says, did you know I couldn't read that? Well, no. Was the font too small? No, I'm colorblind. You used a color that my eyes don't register. Ah, now listen carefully. I didn't consider that. So the Apostle Paul says that these considerations emerge or morph into convictions, right? So I consider a political issue. I consider a justice issue. I consider a health issue. I consider a social policy issue. And I think to myself, well, I've done my homework. I've done my research. So anyone that thinks anything different is wrong? And then someone else steps forward and says, you know, okay, but did you consider this? And you're like, oh, okay. Maybe my pride is tempting me to say, oh, I've considered everything, but I know the truth in my heart that I didn't actually give that enough consideration. So let me rethink this a little bit. Because the Apostle Paul says, here's what you got to remember. Your considerations emerge into convictions. So when you start thinking about the Supreme Court choice and you begin to think about what your considerations are about the impact of the choice of a Supreme Court justice and you think about those implications, those considerations actually become your convictions. Well, guess what? If somebody else is having some of the same considerations you have, but also other considerations, they may emerge into a slightly different conviction or a wholly different conviction. And that can feel like distress or division. Does any of this resonate with you? My guess is it is because we're living in the same world. This was the world into which Paul mailed this letter. Paul sent this letter to a group of real people just like us with real questions just like us and with all of these factors going on in their life, their society, their family, their churches, and their educational opportunities. So let's look at 10 practical steps for handling and navigating difficult circumstances, difficult conversations, and emerging better on the other end. Let me say that again. 10 practical steps for handling and facing and navigating difficult circumstances, difficult conversations, and emerging better on the other end. So if your Bible is open to Romans chapter 14, we're going to walk through these 10 practical steps together. Number one, this comes from chapter 14 and verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So, practical step one, accept without quarreling. I don't know 
what you're thinking right now. But as I was preparing this, I thought, well, we could just end the podcast right there. I mean, if we're all at Love First Podcast, if we're all about catalyzing courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love each other, then surely step one would be it. It's like, wait a second, what? We've got to accept each other without quarreling? Well, what if, what if that means that I accept someone where I ha- that I have a quarrel with, right? That I've got a significant difference, that their consideration or their conviction is very different than mine, so I technically, I have a dispute. I have a quarrel. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, accept everyone who agrees with you and do not accept those who disagree with you. The impact of this very first statement is this. There is a reason to quarrel. There is a disputable matter. There is something between the two of you where you see it differently. What did the Apostle Paul say? Well, accept each other without quarreling, which means what? That means that somehow I am going to see your value and I'm going to accept your human value. I am going to accept your divine value. I'm going to accept that God is at work in some way in your life and in our relationship in some way. I'm going to prioritize that truth. And even if we disagree on something, I will not disagree with you in a quarrelsome manner. And that is just the first step. All right, let's take step number two. Step number two, notice in verse two. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, step number two is reject contempt. Reject contempt. The Gottman Institute produced a study some years back that was uh, identified the number one indicator that might say that a marriage is leaning toward dissolution, leaning toward divorce. The Gottman Institute said out of all of the factors, the number one factor is, do the spouses hold each other in contempt? Does a spouse hold their spouse in contempt? Number one indicator that the marriage is headed toward dissolution. The Apostle Paul says, yeah, and that's the number one indicator that a church is headed toward dissolution or a relationship in a church is headed toward toward dissolution or a country is headed toward dissolution or an educational or a business institution is headed toward dissolution. When we choose contempt, we are not only going against Scripture, but we are going against a better future. Do you realize that we actually live in an environment of contempt, that disagreement can emerge into name-calling? What is that about? How does name-calling and degrading someone do anything to advance the culture and help us emerge better? It does nothing. That's why timeless biblical teaching says, oh, we'll reject contempt. Notice chapter 14 and verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? 
for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So basically what Paul says is, you realize that you're going to get called into account for holding someone else in contempt. You realize that, right? Having, a, having an attitude or a caricature of another person that they're just contemptible, that that's all you see, that we're going to be held in, in, uh, accountable for that. So step two, reject contempt. Step three, embrace your place in God's family. Step three, embrace your place in God's family. Notice what it says in verse 4, 14, 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So just like the story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son, a younger son who has made a series of bad decisions and put his life, compromised his life, put his life in danger, put his life at risk, has basically abandoned all of the ways that he was brought up, right? You've got an older brother at home who basically pay, played by the rules. When that younger son comes home, the father receives him, welcomes him, and celebrates his return and makes him stand. The older brother holds him in contempt. The father appeals to the older brother and says, you don't understand family. You're both my sons. That makes you siblings. You need to embrace your place in God's family. Number five, Become one with God's heart. Read with me 14, chapter 14, the second half again. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Look at chapter 14 and verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do you hear the heart of God in that? Look at chapter 14, verses 19 through 21. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace, to mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for the person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to stumble. Do you hear the heart of God? These are not rules. These are not laws. This is relationship and love. Not rules, not laws. This is relationship and love. You see, that's why the fourth step is becoming one with God's heart. For other people. Step five, stop passing judgment. It's all through this text, but look with me if you would at chapter 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Um, I don't know how you get more clear than that. I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, maybe we read it again. Therefore, stop passing judgment. You see, love first is the heart of God. You realize that comes right out of Scripture. 
1 John 4.19, we love, why? Because God first loved us. But we all know that the human experience has a tendency to judge first, right? We judge first, which leads us to hold people into contempt and so on. Scripture says don't do it that way. Love first. That was step five. Step six, quit making it harder for people to experience the acceptance of God around you. I'll say it again. Number six, quit making it harder for people to experience the acceptance of God around you. Now, this is chapter 14 and verse 13 as well. He says, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, when you're talking about a stumbling block or obstacle, we need to stop here, especially for those of you who might think, I don't even know what that is, or for those of you who think you know exactly what it is. You see, a stumbling block was a common term back then, and it had some positive implications, meaning that the person of Jesus Christ his way of approaching God, his way of approaching people, oh, it absolutely was a stumbling block to those who put themselves first, who put their personal gain first. It was absolutely a stumbling block. Jesus was always getting in the way of people who ignored God and misused people. I'll say that again. Jesus was always getting in the way of people. He was always a stumbling block to people who ignored God and misused people. But what the Apostle Paul is saying in this use of stumbling block is, don't make it hard for people to experience the acceptance of God when they're around you. You see, we are emissaries of God, missionaries of God, representatives of God. We are made in the image of God. We are recreated in the image of Christ, right? That people are supposed to be able, as the Apostle Paul says, to, to imitate us as we imitate Christ, right? Remember when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, right? So live your righteousness in such a way that people will see your good works, but they'll give glory to God. Paul says, listen, if God is that accepting, but you're not, well, then you're making it hard for people to experience the acceptance of God when they're around you. That's a stumbling block. So that is step six. Step seven. Find ways to discuss your journey without resorting to evil or the justification of evil to win your argument. Now, I'm going to say step seven again. Find ways to discuss your journey, your journey of considering things, your journey on your way to convictions. Find a way to discuss what you're considering. Find a way to discuss your convictions without resorting to evil or the justification of evil to win your argument. I want you to think through that for a moment. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 14 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. You may be familiar 
with the Barna Group, who over the last several decades has done vital research to help churches who want to share the good news with the world do it effectively. David Kinneman, one of those researchers, has written several books, but recently he tweeted that sadly and in something that made him angry is that their research shows that white evangelical Christians were more resistant to talking about justice now than even several months ago or last year. How does that happen? How do we go through this particular year, these particular circumstances, the things that are happening right now at the recording of this podcast, and be more resistant to talking about issues of justice and how the gospel speaks into that? Okay, well, that's an important conversation, but I want you to notice something different. Why would that make a researcher sad or angry? Why would it evoke that kind of emotion from David Kinnaman? Well, the reason is, is because he's a devoted Christian. And so much of his research has been devoted to helping the next generations embrace Christ. And what he realizes is that overwhelmingly, one of the primary reasons that younger generations resist the Christian message is because older people just like me have been resistant to conversations about the impact of the gospel on concerns of justice. You see, when we find ways to discuss our considerations of justice, our convictions about the gospel and the transformation of the world, we must figure out ways to do that without resorting to evil behavior, the choice of evil words, or justifying those who use them. That's part of this practical guidance. The Apostle Paul says, if you know the gospel's good, don't talk about it in a way that makes people see it as evil. So let me read step seven one last time. Find ways to discuss your journey without resorting to evil or the justification of evil to win your argument. I'd like you, if you would, in your own time, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, where the Apostle Paul says something very startling. He says, if it's going to risk people even being open to hearing the gospel, it would actually be better if you would step back and experience some personal discomfort, some personal hardship in order to present the gospel in a way that people can hear it rather than resorting to evil in order to win an argument. Number eight, reprioritize righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit so that we can experience the benefits of the kingdom of God. I'm going to read this in chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So when you commit to rejecting evil, rejecting contempt, rejecting a quarreling spirit, you're living righteously, 
peacefully, joyfully with others. The Apostle Paul says, then God is pleased with you. And guess what? Other people are going to be more open to hearing the message of Jesus Christ through you. Number nine, put your energy to what leads to peace and mutual upbuilding. Number nine, put your energy to what leads to peace and mutual upbuilding. Look at chapter 14 and verse 19 again. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Edification, you hear in there the word edifice or building. So basically the Apostle Paul says, Orient yourself in all of these conversations so that in the end, you've given every opportunity for peace to emerge and mutual upbuilding. You see, in many of our conversations, our goal might start out at least benign or even good. But if somebody annoys us, if somebody frustrates us, if somebody calls us a name, if somebody even appears to put us down, maybe they never did call us a name. Maybe they never did tell us that we were unjust or, or that maybe we were racist. They never said any of those things, but we felt the impact of that. Once we feel the impact of that, the enemy comes in and tempts us to adjust our place in the conversation so that we are no longer pursuing peace and unity and we're no longer pursuing mutual upbuilding. Hmm. That can't be the best the kingdom of God offers and that certainly doesn't fit biblical guidance. Biblical guidance says you do everything you can to continually bring peace and mutual upbuilding. This isn't a one and done. This isn't a, well, I'll try it for the first few minutes of the conversation, but I'm going to abandon the teachings of Scripture if I start to feel uncomfortable. If someone, I feel like they're kind of attacking me or putting me down, well, then I've heard this, all bets are off. Well, that's not biblical at all. That's not the teaching of the Bible at all. If we're going to be people who claim to follow biblical teaching, this one's pretty straightforward. Put your energy to what leads to peace and mutual upbuilding. And then number 10, number 10, keep some things between you and God in the pursuit of peace. <laughs> there it is again. It's so simple, but it is so hard. Keep some things between you and God in the pursuit of peace. Look with me at chapter 14 and verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things Keep between yourself and God. What? Well, wait a minute. I, I thought this was all about catalyzing courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love. I thought this was about, this episode specifically, effective ways, practical steps to actually navigate these conversations right? These difficult circumstances and emerge better on the other side. It is all about that. All the apostle Paul is saying is just make sure you understand that there will be times when you need to keep something between you and God in the pursuit of peace. So for instance, somebody shares something that is shocking to your system, you feel ambushed by it, you don't agree with it, 
you are frustrated. They said something in either a private or public forum, and you just felt like it was unfair. It didn't represent all the considerations. On and on and on. And you're thinking to yourself, the first chance I get, I'm going to set them straight. The first chance I get, I'm going to let them have it. Well, yeah, but what do you do with Romans chapter 14 and verse 22 and verse A, that's, uh, or, or part A, that says, Actually, whatever you think about these things, keep them between you and God uh, in the pursuit of peace here. And you're like, well, yeah, they should have. Ah, I know what we're thinking. They should have kept it between themselves and God. They should have done that. Well, how successful have you been at controlling someone else's behavior? You might even say, I don't know, I've had a little trouble controlling my own. Well... I appreciate the honesty. I'm right there with you. It's not about what the other person did or did not do, did or did not say. The Apostle Paul is saying to you and to me, you, you keep it between you and God in the pursuit of peace. You see, Jesus himself said to his own disciples, I have other things to tell you, but you're not ready for them. Now, that might mean this conversation itself is not ready for it. That might mean that for a few days the conversation is not ready for it. That might mean for a brief season the conversation is not ready for it. Jesus followed that up and said, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you everything. So it's not like Jesus was never going to say those things, and that's not the point. The point is, could you determined by the discernment of the Holy Spirit and prayer and what is best for the other person and their mutual upbuilding and determine that sometimes you just don't have to get it off your chest. You just don't have to say it. I was in a church business meeting many years ago and someone said something that was really, really mean-spirited toward another person. Well, they could feel the tension in the room that people felt like it was inappropriate. That person looked around and said, well, somebody needed to say it. And I looked at them and I said, did they? I mean, did they need to say it? Did they need to say it right now? Did they need to say it that way? Did they need to say it in this setting? I did not say no one needed to say that because there's a category for that too. There's a category for things that never need to be said. There's a category for those mean-spirited, behind-the-back or face-to-face things or online that just simply don't ever need to be said. My wife and I are blessed with a wonderful relationship, our friendship, our marriage, our life together in Christ. But we had some great advice early on before we ever got married. An older couple shared this wisdom with us. Do not ever make fun of your spouse in public or private. Don't ever make fun of your spouse in public or private. We took that to heart. We made the decision that we would never take pot shots at each other make fun of each other, embarrass each other, or even potentially hurt each other's feelings because we had been hurt ourselves. That has served our marriage well. 
That doesn't mean we haven't hurt each other. We have. That doesn't mean we haven't been disappointed. We have. That doesn't mean that sometimes either my wife or I have bit our lip in a conversation so that we would resist the temptation to say something that should not be said or shouldn't be said then so that we could listen better to the other person. We've done all of those things over the years, and there's a great benefit to that. So what I want to make crystal clear is these 10 specific steps have great benefit. What did we say at the beginning? What do we want to do? How do we want to emerge? We want to emerge better. So I'm going to read them one more time, and I'm going to read them in order. All of them from Romans 14. Number one, accept one another without quarreling. Number two, reject contempt. Number three, embrace your place in God's family. Number four, become one with God's heart. Number five, stop passing judgment. Number six, quit making it harder for people to experience the acceptance of God around you. Number seven, find ways to discuss your journey without resorting to evil or justifying evil to win an argument. Number eight, reprioritize righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit for the benefit of each other. Number nine, put your energy to what leads to peace and mutual upbuilding. And number 10, keep some things between you and God in the pursuit of peace. Well, I'd like to return as we close this episode to mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, I did mention that I was blessed with a really great engine for my car when a mosquito distracted my good friend. What a bummer for him. Blessing for me. We remained friends all these years. I hate what happened for him. But you know when I started thinking about it? That's the only mosquito blessing story I have. Out of all these years, I actually don't have another mosquito blessing story. Oh, I've, I've, I've got bummer stories. I've got being in a, you know, a tent with mosquitoes in it and trying to get rid of them. I've had mosquitoes in my own car, right? I've thought about that every time I swat at one. I've helped support efforts around the world to provide mosquito netting for other people. You know, I, I get it. I, I just don't have a lot of stories about the benefit of mosquitoes. And yes, for the most part, I think they're annoying at minimum, deadly at worst. In 1944, because of the war effort in the Second World War, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Department of Agriculture together began to work on a mosquito repellent. It was known as bug juice. Uh, it was uh, 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 known as bug spray. We mostly know it today as off. Now, I'm not going to try to say the actual chemical name for this, but they call it DEET, D-E-E-T. Uh, this was started in 1944. The patent was issued in 1946. It didn't come to the general public until 1957. Uh, researchers estimate that 78 million Americans put on bug spray off every year, 200 million people around the world. It turns out mosquitoes don't like the smell of it, and it keeps them away. Some people have said, well, man, I mean, isn't it harmful to people, harmful to the environment? 
The New England Journal of Medicine, and after an exhaustive study in 2002, said that this is actually the most studied synthetic compound in history with over 8 billion applications, and as these go, it is the safest or among the safest ever. Ah, but a 1996 study says that it actually gives neurological damage to cockroaches. And some of us are thinking... Oh, man, another good reason to have off. It makes cockroaches go crazy. Well, the truth about off bug spray beat is that it also costs money. And that turns out that the people in the world who actually need it the most, the geographical locations where it's not just an annoyance, but mosquitoes carry deadly disease, are the people that are the least likely to be able to get it. Of the 200 million applications of DEET in the world, among a population of seven plus billion, you can do the math. That's a problem. And so people that find it annoying or even fearful in the bulk of the world, they've had to learn to navigate it. Navigate difficult circumstances. Find ways to emerge out the other side better and safe. I know it's hard sometimes um, to talk about what it means to experience privilege, you know. But maybe this is a good illustration. That one of the things that kind of privileges us is that people that have the affluence, have enough money to buy it, are often the people who actually have the greatest capacity to avoid mosquitoes in the first place. Indoors, windows rolled up in our cars. And the people who need it the most are the people that actually just can't turn off the annoyance. They can't just spray and all that annoyance or threat goes away. I would suggest this. Wouldn't it be better that we approach our difficult circumstances, our difficult conversations more like that? That rather than just stepping away, lobbing a grenade, so to speak, on social media, calling people names, cutting off someone from our family, walking away from our church, bad-mouthing another institution, negatively categorizing everyone in some other political party, rather than just brushing away the annoyance. What if we learned how to re-engage through these 10 effective, practical, biblical steps to where we can navigate those difficult circumstances better, we can navigate difficult conversations better, and we can emerge out the other side with better relationships greater unity, and a better society, church, family for the future. Thank you so much for joining us for the Love First podcast. I pray that you will like, subscribe, and share, and we look forward to seeing you next time.